Um, so why Jesus? Well, good question. Um, so when I look back on my life, I realize there were, I feel like I'm loud, we're notable, okay. Um, notable moments when I ask myself the same question. Um, and so I'll just kind of list a couple of those that were pretty significant for me. So as a background, I was brought up um, in Catholicism. And by junior high, our family had stopped going, um, attending mass. Um, so in high school, one Sunday, I decided to go to mass, drive myself there. And I'm not really sure why I went. <laughs> I don't remember all the details, but I remember sitting there. And I sat, and I was like really listening. And I, I was like, I had trouble resolving. Like, why was Jesus part of the Trinity? I remember thinking, I knew what God did, as if we really know what God did. And then the Holy Spirit made sense. Um, but why a man named Jesus was part of the Trinity, I was really not sure. So that was kind of a memorable why Jesus moment, but I, I left and I filed that one for later. Um, and then the second uh, memorable why Jesus moment was actually just a few years later and was with Craig, my husband, um, as college freshmen on what was our first official date, um, which was a concert at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa in Southern California. So, um, and that was different. I'd never been to a church concert before. I was expecting more like a, you know, a tuba and a <laughs> um, little band. But anyway, um, so, and then for those of you, might be a few of you who might know early Christian music, it was a Sweet Comfort Band concert. Um, and it was February 1979. So, yes, we've been together for a very long time. Um, at the beginning of the concert, there was a very large crowd, and they asked them, and like about 2,000 people probably, and it said, you know, somebody said, who loves Jesus? And the crowd went wild and erupted into this like deafening cheering and hand waving, and it kind of took me by surprise. Um, I just thought like a simple nod or something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, that would do, but they um, uh, erupted into this deafening cheering and hand-waving, and it took me by surprise. Um, but at that moment, my very second, the second memorable why Jesus, actually a very significant one, moment occurred, and it became, as Denise coined last week, a spotlight moment. Um, time seemed to stand still. The roar of the crowd dulled. Um, the people around me blurred, <laughs> and I noticed that my hand was trying to go up, but then going down, but then going back up, and I was um, wrestling internally, thinking like, well, I'm not an atheist, so my hand started to go up, and then I thought, but I'm not as excited as everyone else, <laughs> so my hand kind of came down, and then I thought, well, I've been baptized in my first Holy Communion, and I have done my confirmation, so I believe you know, in God, and, but then again, um, I don't have the excitement that surrounded me, and I thought, hmm, why Jesus? Like, why, what, what's this excitement about? Um, so after that experience, um, I, instead of filing it, I began a path of learning about who Jesus was, and I started attending church along with Craig and read the Bible and attend Bible studies, and it was during this time that I became a Christian. It wasn't a day and a time. I realized in my sophomore year that I believed more than I didn't, and that in my life, Jesus was putting stepping stones along the way to bring me to faith in him. And there were some earlier moments in my life that Jesus showed up that it was you know, memorable for me, but I can't say all of them. 
Um, but then there was some conflict, even at that time in college as a science major, I learned from other Christians that I would have to deny science to be a real Christian. And I had science classes and TAs who made jokes about Christians who didn't believe in evolution. And I began to believe that they most likely were not mutually exclusive. Um, I'd learned that there were Christians who held both beliefs, and I became one of them. This recognition of conflicts between Christianity and other issues would surface again, but not for a while. So fast forward many years, and I began to have questions and recognize conflicts between the Christian teachings and Christian social culture that I was part of and the society that I was living in and kind of how my life fit into all of this, um, as well as what I believed. So mostly this involved um, aspect of being a woman, a wife, a mother, and what I was supposed to do, what I wasn't supposed to do, um, but would also extend to others. So, I mean, the first conflict was teaching that women should not work outside the home. So as this was sort of from the Bible, hmm, so I was trying to ask, ask, like, why Jesus, why this? And I've always worked, not always full-time or whatever, but essentially I've always worked. So did I feel different from other women at church? Yes. Comments like, oh, you work outside the home, or my husband does not want me to work outside the home, definitely make you feel judged and even have an implication on Craig. Um, and later I came to understand what a privileged belief this was. Um, and I certainly didn't feel any less a Christian woman for working. So why Jesus? How could the Bible say this? Um, second was teaching that women should not be pastors. Thank you, Danielle, I love you. <laughs> and should not teach men. Well, maybe occasionally, just not very much. Um, so again, this was, I was taught from the Bible. So I was like, seriously? Why, Jesus? Um, women could teach. I've learned much from women, um, you know, Christian women as well as academically, and then, and for men. But can I tell the difference? Can I repeat what I've learned based on the gender of the teacher? Nope. Um, at a previous, well, I won't even, this, I'm going to leave this one out, but yeah. I just kind of found that um, I wasn't as like-minded as the women I had associated with for years. I comes to find out. <laughs> um, and then the last, or one of the last also, is just teaching that sexuality between anyone other than a man and a woman was wrong. Again, you know, this was, I was being taught, was from the Bible. So why, Jesus, you created all of us. I've also been taught you don't make mistakes. So so much emphasis on this. So how could the Bible say this? And why Jesus, where there's so many barriers and limitations? I began to read and learn from female Christian authors, and there were other ways of interpreting God's word that were... Um, that there were biases and patriarchal motives, and other Christians did not hold those beliefs and you know, considered it biblical. Um, so at this time, Jesus continued to be faithful and provided a way to help answer these questions that have been in my path. Um, you know, included in that was like just um, became an awareness of racial justice issues and my lack of understanding and empathy, a personal one, as well as um, from the church that we were attending, and um, so I, and I had the dates in here too, but um, so I had, you know, just in searching, I had come across um, Austin Channing Brown, and it just happened to be on, I want to say it was February 10th, in 2018, uh, something, 19, 19, and I only know that because I had been looking her up, and then when I looked her up on her website, 
she had just taught in Palo Alto. And I was like, where was she at? And, uh, and then she's like, Spark Church. And I was like, I never heard of it. <laughs> and uh, been around here a long time. Um, and then looked at the website and saw that um, Justin Sprinkle and Justin Lee, or whatever, Preston, I don't I get this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sprinkly Lee, um, were giving a talk. So um, we were interested, so we went to that, and that was the first time that we um, came, came to Spark and, you know, saw some people. Um, so, um, let's see. Um, but that was how Jesus led, you know, this, in terms of searching, um, I just wanted, darn it, I, you know, I really redid this. Um, anyway, it was in the, in the asking of the question why Jesus um, has led to a lot of discovery and then led us um, to here. So um, I'm really grateful for that. Um, so at this time, Jesus, you know, has continued to be faithful and provided a way to help answer these questions that have been in my path. And that answer has come in spark the teaching and all the people um, learning the way of Jesus. Um, however, I've been here long enough to learn that asking why Jesus will actually never end and it shouldn't. So, anyway. thanks for bearing with me on the end there. <laughs> thank you, Renee, so much. It was beautiful. Thank you for sharing and thank you for being part of our community really grateful. We all are in our Fruit of the Spirit series. I'm really grateful for this opportunity to come together and continue to tackle these different fruits. Uh, we've gone through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and today is faithfulness. Now, as I have considered Fruit of the Spirit for a long time in pastoral ministry and all those different types of things, I have often thought that I don't always see a lot of this fruit amongst my fellow Jesus followers. So I'm like, where is the fruit? And I've had people in my life go, oh, I have um, the gift of prophecy. And I go, awesome, that's so great. How do you know you have the gift of prophecy? And they say, well, because when I tell people things, they get mad. I'm like, so you might. I'm just saying, you, it, it could be the delivery. Um, you might have the spiritual fruit of um, being a jerk. So we should discuss this because I think if you have the spiritual gift of prophecy, fantastic, but it should also be in concert with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so as we try to see the evidences of different fruits of the Spirit in our midst, I have often, in watching people who are absolutely wonderful, including myself, proclaiming the name and the way of Jesus, thought, fantastic, fruit check aisle 12. Let's figure out if in what the person is proclaiming in their way of Jesus, we can see the love of Christ, that gentleness, that self-control, the fidelity, faithfulness that is on. So, so all of that, all the goodness that we see, all of that. So what Pastor Kevin, um, I'm sorry, Pastor Kevin spoke about last week was the goodness. And I was, I thought it was a fantastic message, loved it, really great. And I also thought to myself, well, this is really interesting because several times in our near 25 years of marriage, when I've been complaining about somebody who maybe was not as fruit evident as others, I have said to myself, these people are really frustrating. And Kevin's response has been, you'll be happier, Danielle, once you realize people are no darn good. <laughs> 
And so my whole life, uh, or 25 years, I've been told, Danielle, just realize people are no darn good. And the moment you realize that people are no darn good, you will stop being disappointed when you don't see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithful, self-control. So here is what I would like to do. Would you please come on up, Kevin? Because I would like to have a conversation with you about your, the contrary reality in my life of a sermon beautifully preached about how we are made good and in the image of God and God calls us good and it's so good. And then also when I come to you and I go, can you believe this behavior? You're like, yeah, just be happy as long as you realize people know darn good. So can you please help me reconcile these two things in my life and let's have a conversation and we will get to in this conversation the fruit of faithfulness. Can I help you reconcile? Yes. No. Great. Okay. So let's jump first. Awesome. Then given that, I'm going to interrogate you for a few moments because I also heard that one wonderful sparker after your sermon last week said something along the lines of, I think we just need like a really long Q&A afterwards where we can have that conversation. So welcome. Hi. Um, so be careful what you say to people after church. We'll just do it the next week small and agile as we are. Okay, so given the fact that this week is faithfulness, let's talk about faithfulness for a few moments because I think it's going to get us back to your conversation last week as well. So what is the fruit of faithfulness? When Paul says that faith or faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit, that it is fruitful to see that, what type of life is Paul expecting us to live? So let's do our quick little word study, um, and we can talk about this for a few moments, both of us hanging back. This is not, you're not on trial here, by the way. You're welcome to speak whenever you like. Don't lie in church. (laughs) Okay, there we go. So in the Greek, in the New Testament, the word for faith is pistis, and in Hebrew, it's emunah, which is where we also get the word like amen or amet for truth. There's like some connectedness to all of that. In both, and I'm sure you would say this too, Kevin, in both the Greek and the Hebrew, although it might be a little bit more in like the Eastern thought process than the Western thought process, both pistis and amuna have the concept of a belief, but also a belief that is lived out. So it can't just be faith. Like, so a lot of times when we say, what's your faith? Check the box. I am this, this, and this. And that can be simply us saying, this is my statement of belief, my statement of faith, an ascension of belief that I have, an intellectual exercise in my mind. These are the things that I believe. This is my faith. But in both the New Testament, and so specifically in the first century world of Jesus, Um, a Judeo, a Jewish first century world that is also influenced by the Greek thought, by Hellenism. And also in the Hebrew scriptures, both have the connotation not just of a belief system, but also of action that follows it. So it is an action word, would you say? Yes. Yes. Anything you want to add to that? The idea that faith or belief is an assent to an idea, an affirmation of idea, just like we talked about last week, Uh, The idea of the good was influenced by who? The Greeks. The same concept or the same shift and movement of assent to an idea also comes from the Greeks. And so those of us who have, uh, you know, traversed this world where 
are you a believer means do you assent to this idea about who Jesus is rather than are you a believer meaning do you actually live in a way that is in concert with the teachings of Jesus those two different definitions the reason why we have the assent to an idea so prevalent in our culture is once again because of the Greeks if you notice, some of you actually think this is cool of Spark. We don't have a statement of faith. That was something that was, from the <laughs> very beginning, emerges out of this idea. The, the fundamental teaching that to be part of Spark does not mean you have to assent to the idea. The Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. That Jesus is uh, the second person of the Trinity. That Jesus is going to come back. and you know All of those kinds of things. Now... None of those things we would ever say is wrong. We would always discuss and debate the theologies. That's what we do here. You guys know that. But to list it as the parameters around which you are judged as whether or not you're a good or a bad Christian does not make sense to this tradition. Because a munah is are you trustworthy to fulfill and live out these teachings? And are you faithful to the faith. So one of the first places in the Hebrew Bible where we find the word emunah is this story from Exodus 34. And there's lots of places. I'm just picking a couple, okay? It's all over. It's all over. So yeah. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, Moses, Mount Sinai, all the things. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and emunah, faith, faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So we know in this time, in this, the word emunah, which can be translated either faith or faithfulness, we wouldn't suggest at all that God is abounding in uh, intellectual belief in God's self, right? God's not going, wow, I really believe in myself today. This is fantastic. I'm I abounding. Believe, I am omnipotent. I'm abounding in faith. I am omniscient. I am really abounding in my belief in myself. Instead here, it is that it is saying abounding in love and faithfulness. The decision, the action of God is that God is true to God's covenant and to the promises that God has made to God's people and God will live those out. Not long after this then event in Exodus 34, we'll just grab another verse from Deuteronomy 7, God then talks about God's self through Moses. It was because the Lord loved you, Israel, and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, the emunah, God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So when Paul says that fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness, these echoes and definitions would be pulling through. We have a picture right away of what it means to be faithful. And that first idea in our head is that it is God who is first faithful. It is God who first demonstrates faith and faithfulness to us and helps us to understand how to identify that fruit when we see it. The first way we would identify it, or at least characterize it, define it, would be through God and God's actions to God's people. Yes? Yeah. Okay. 
So then I think we would say to ourselves, amongst ourselves today, when we're talking about this fruit of the Spirit, is faith something we can see? Or is it again, like, because I think if somebody said to me, can you see someone's face? I'd be like, well, but then immediately I'm already talking about action, right? So let's talk about this story from Mark, 12, Mark 2. A few days later, and you can read this in several of the Gospels, Jesus has entered Capernaum, and the people heard that he had come, and they gathered in such large numbers, there's no room left in the room, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, and since they could not get, in, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered that, the man, the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your son's my son, your sins are forgiven. So faith, this is the same word that Paul is using, exact same, pistis here in the New Testament. Jesus here can see it. So when we talk of what is Paul saying, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, this is something we should be able to observe in one another's life. Yes? Yes. And Interestingly enough, note that Jesus doesn't say to the person on the mat, I see your faith, therefore you earn, because you believe it really hard, your healing. Instead it is, I see the faith of all of you. And it's demonstrated by the fact that you insisted on coming to see me. Because you did have a belief that I could do this, but had they just stayed home, Kevin, and thought, wow, I really believe Jesus could do that, we would not see their faith, no. right? So we were talking about this. Faithfulness is impossible without faith. And this is really where we would head to the book of James. What good is your faith if it's simply a belief that's not acted upon? This is what a lot of us talk about, particularly in racial justice space, about performative action. Right? Somebody goes out there, they take the nice photo in front for their Instagram feed, and they look really great while they're doing the thing, but then those who've been in the space long enough are saying, yeah, but what's the action? How did you follow that up? Here's the book of James. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? This is the same word again. Surely that faith cannot save, can it? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, and here doesn't it sound when you say that James is arguing with the distinctive that is present in his culture between Greco-Roman thought and Jewish thought. And an argument within Jewish uh, philosophy in and of itself. I think, but I don't know, are you going to interrogate me about my, yes, uh, we're getting my there. hypocrisy? Yes, we Yeah, yes. Okay, so I'll Please, you I'll can wait. go now. No, I no, go wait. now. Um, James is a great example yes. of a contrarian view. A lot of people will read Paul and they'll say, you are saved by faith and not by works, right? And this gets into the Calvinism Maya, I did not say it was a heresy. Just to be clear, it was not saying it was a heresy. <laughs> uh, but that gets into the whole idea that it is your faith, it's your assent to these particular beliefs is what saves you. And then you read James and you go, wait a second, he's saying just the opposite. One of my answers to Danielle's quip about my um, intellectual hypocrisy, is that what you're doing to me? It's, um, com it's coming soon. Yeah. It is essentially that I can preach a message or teach a message about how we are fundamentally good and how we're also no darn good, 
Thank you for editing that for the, for the public, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh, I just let out way too much there. Um, the, the reason why that exists is because Romans and James exist in the same text. And Galatians. And Galatians. Yeah. And one of the things that Christians are very um, allergic to is the idea that there are contrarian, difficult, conflicting ideas. Because circumstances and situations demand different kinds of theological application. And so, it yeah. is not correct to say that this particular theological uh, idea, that you're saved by faith and uh, not by works, is 100% true universally and everybody agreed, it all, agreed about it all the time. James disagrees. And he's trying to counteract. Mm, I'll argue this. Uh, so he's trying to counteract so. to to a, a misunderstanding <laughs> of this particular teaching. And that's what yes, we yeah, have in yeah. our text. And so when I can have a contrarian view, it is because that's how life works. <laughs> well, yes, though, and. Let's keep going. All right, ready? But you can disagree with me. That's no, for sure. part this of is, the whole point. This is the point. I think you're right. I think James is having the argument of how the word faith has been misinterpreted in his world to mean you can just believe something and it doesn't matter or say it, but that you don't follow up with it isn't really true. So here he'll say, if by faith, it's verse 17, so by faith itself it has no works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. If you believe, you believe God is one, you do well. Big deal. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Everyone gets that. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is worthless? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? It'd be nice to have James and Paul at a dinner. Um, and Yaakov and, and Shaul. Um, you see that faith was active along with his works and by works faith. So it continues on. And then it says... For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. It's not, you can't simply say, I believe it. And I think that's a little of what's behind this hope that Paul sees in the Galatian community. Faithfulness. You believe it and you act on it. So James is pointing out here in this text that Satan himself believes Jesus died for sins of the world, that this is the temptation story that we just did, uh, if, you've, if you're reading the Lenten calendar this week, believe Jesus died for the sins of the world, that he is in God in flesh, and just knowing that that doesn't redeem Satan. Satan can believe Jesus is God, but that doesn't save him, right? He might even have the right beliefs. His theology might be better than ours. But we would not say that he has emunah. We would not say that he's faithful, would we? We would not say that he has a committed faithfulness to the Lord. So God is asking for us, what God asks for goes beyond an academic decision to believe that a certain set of facts are true. God wants faith in God's promises that result in a steadfast faithfulness to him. And this is what I think I want to push back on for your comment last week. So Kevin got us all the way back to the garden, and he said, we are, and I love this, because I want to be a Genesis 1-2 person and not live my entire life by Genesis 3. So Genesis 1-2 is, you are made, we are made good. In the image of God. And God says, tov, tov mode, right? And this is what you preached on. Uh, that's what I thought. Right? I said. That's what yep. you thought you said. I, and I fully, 100%, <laughs> 
agree. And then Genesis 3. So I think what I love about your message is that we should not identify and live out of what happens in Genesis 3, which is that sneaky snake comes and then we're all fallen and stuck and wrecked forever. And Paul talks about a, lot, a lot about this, right? But that we can still live in the identity of being good. Why? And my argument is going to be because we actually are no darn good, but there is one who is. And that God's covenantal rescue plan through Jesus, starting way back with all of the things that we talk about, Noah, Abraham, Sinai, all of this up until Jesus, is that is constantly showing us that the faithfulness that we see and the faithfulness by which we are saved, I think Paul argues in Romans, mm-hmm. is God's faithfulness to us. God knows we're a hot mess. God sticks the rescue plan into place anyway. And because we're a hot mess, because that's true, because God knows we cannot do for ourselves what we need to have done, we can't be faithful to the covenant. God keeps the covenant faithfully for us, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves in Christ. And that's why we can be called good. Since we are justified by faithfulness, Romans 5, right? We have peace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is their argument we ended up having with a friend after service last Sunday, which was really great and fantastic. So give us all of the things, because I think actually we would both argue both are true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I want to be brief. Both are true. And there is a difference between are you a good person that has the ability to do evil, or are you an evil person that has the ability to do good? Um, my, I, I would suggest that my teaching from last week is about who we are, not what we do. And the salvation ethic of Romans is about what we do and how we become who we are. Um, so I hope that's not a terribly roundabout way of trying to make sense of a complicated kind of idea. I would fundamentally agree that theologically what's happening here is because of sin, because of our brokenness, because we are in desperate need of a rescue plan and we all feel that every single day. When we, and and we've talked about this before, when we sing, for example, God is good. I know some, sometimes we don't want to sing that because look at everything around us. The point is not to say, look at everything around us, which is evidence of God being good. We sing God being good because look at everything around us. We have to believe that there is one who is good. Mm -hmm. And if we can adhere to that one, then all of that mess will become good. And that's part of a little bit of what's going on here in that we are justified through faith, which is the faithfulness of Jesus, the faithfulness of God. Because we're going to mess it up and we're going to be screwed. We're going we're gonna to fall short. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot achieve that kind of a thing. And so God, through Jesus, accomplishes that for which we cannot do for ourselves. But that does not negate right. the core essence and identity from what I proposed is fundamentally true about ourselves. Right. And the reason why we need that redemption is because we are returning. This is part of the rescue plan. 
we are attempting through this faith and faithfulness to return back to the original condition of who we are. Right. Um, if I, you guys know the word repentance? What does repent mean? Yeah. Oh, you guys are educated. Okay, well done. Um, I, so if, I, if, this is, if this is home and I walk away from home, repentance means this. Go back home. Now, for a lot of people in Christian circles, repentance means stop doing the bad thing that you're doing and say sorry. Right. The biblical or a deeper understanding is to return back to the place from which you came. There was a home. For us, in the grand narrative of the story, Garden of Eden is that home. No shame, naked and unashamed, perfect relationship with God, with the created order, and with one another. That's home. Right. Then we mess it up. It doesn't change the core essence of our... I keep wanting to say ontology. I'm sorry, that's a big word. It doesn't change the core essence of our very being, but we make mistakes and we screw things up. So we need help to get back to the core essence of who we are. So that's kind of how I put those two things together. When we were talking about this in our debate and discussion earlier, um, I think what also resonates with me so much of what you said last week is how are we defining ourselves? Do we walk around constantly saying, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I deserve all the condemnation and shame, everything's terrible and awful, or do we walk around saying, I am made by a good creator in the image of that good creator and that creator calls me good and calls me into my potential to be and to do good. And I'm going to argue just that that piece that I would say, and I think this is in Paul's mind too, is that the reason why we can have that to be our identity is because of the curse reversing death of Jesus that takes us away from Genesis 3 and jams us right back to Genesis 1 and 2. I I completely agree. I I think... Um, the whole idea of Christian theology, mean, I, I mentioned the gospel hand, right? Yes. You start with, I am a sinner, but Jesus is good. Right? We start with a shame-based uh, kind of view of right. ourselves and of, of humanity. And what I'm just simply proposing is that yes. that is not the starting place. That's not the home place. That's not the most right. true thing about us. Now, that we make mistakes. You guys, I mean, this is the difference between guilt and shame. Shame is you are bad. Guilt is you did bad. These are two radically different ideas, and they're unfortunately very much conflated in our minds. But if you notice, it's very, uh, it's one of the most critical things in the Genesis story. They were naked and not ashamed. Uh, and, and part of the nakedness there is not just about not having clothes. Say it's, naked five more times. <laughs> naked, 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 naked. They were naked. Um, it's not just about having clothes, but you could expose the fullness of who you actually are and not be ashamed. And the first thing that enters in after the, what some people call the fall, but after they eat from the knowledge of the tree, the tree of the knowledge, and there's that key word, they now know and they start to feel shame for the very first time. And that shame is the thing we are supposed to fight against. And that's the thing that is not home. And yet, 
we have inherited a Christian theology that says that's the, the starting place. And that's what I keep pushing back on. Agreed. And the thing, though, how does God respond to their place of disobedience? God says, where are you? Now, we could say that God knows because God knows. But God is willing to say, will you be found by me even when you are in shame? And when you are there and you're hiding and you know that the shame is present, God's first act after finding them in a small little lecture um, is to say, let me make some clothes for you. I will cover over your shame. And I think, again, we have this, when we talk about what is faithfulness, the faithfulness of God to meet us in all of our vulnerable shame places when we aren't living up to who God has made us to be and to say, you know, I know you can't do this, so I'll show you the one who is good. And I will bring you into right relationship. This is one of our core values at Spark is reconciliation because Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation because Christ reconciled us to God. So we have been lost, been broken, been stuck, steeped in sin. None are good, right? Only the Lord, but Jesus brings us back. And so when we were talking about this, you said, well, ask this question. If we're so good, why are there so many commands in the Bible telling us how to behave and what to do when people don't? And I think it's because we all know, every single person here in this room knows that right now we're going to go, okay, today's the day I'm going to really embrace my vocation as being made good in the image of God and to do good and to be faithful in the world. And then I'm going to go out on the freeway and I get real mad at somebody real quick and I will be unfaithful to any of those commands immediately and immediately immediately know that I need, again, a savior. Pastor Mark read earlier on that confession of sin that we do every Ash Wednesday, but I grew up in a liturgical church doing this every Sunday. And every Sunday we would say, we confess to you that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Forgive us, renew us. And the, and the liturgy around it is created in me a clean heart, oh God. It's, it's Psalm 51, it's more. And then the pastor or priest would say that it was done, that God did it, that, that by us saying we had messed up and going and saying, please forgive us and renew us, that we would walk out of there knowing that we were forgiven and renewed because of faithfulness because of God's faithfulness to constantly do that. And I think growing up, I knew every Sunday I needed to say that. As a little kid, I was like, today I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit my sister. Like that's gonna happen on the way home. So today, and this is this beautiful quote, would you read it for us? Because I think this has been part of even the conversation between last week and this week. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their, of their own heart? This is part of being human. And it's part of being a Christian. To realize that God has looked at you and said, you're good. My this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. You are good. And you have a lot of work to do. 
We all do, and you're going to mess it up today. So we all walk around and with the two things, don't we? Like the inclination in, in Hebrew, in rabbinic thought, there's this conversation about we have an inclination to do good and an inclination to do evil, and all of us are born with both inclinations, and there's even a prayer for it. There's a prayer for sort of tamping down the evil inclination. It's very similar in some lines to the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's very similar. And so this inclination to do good and to do bad is understood within Jesus' day. And that the exhortation was, love God with both. All, that's the all. So Kevin, when I was looking for some images and I was thinking about our discussion, our talk, about like, are people good or evil? I saw this, why did it go so fast? Humans, good or evil? Yes. And it's from a nice, you'll have to, I didn't listen to it, I, don't, I can't say it is any good, but it just made me laugh because this is exactly what we're talking about. Yes. And this is part of the wrestling. And it's why when we look out and we try to see fruit of the Spirit in our own community, we will often say, people are no darn good. Or we'll say, oh, I, I can see that fruit in the same person that I talked about last week thinking they were no darn good, they showed up and did some good, right? And it was me. I'm no darn good, and I also showed up and did the good, right? So I think both are true. And when Paul, though, is asking for faithfulness, it's not about believing in Jesus really hard. It's not about any of that. And, and there's fidelity pieces to it and things, but it's this belief that that God has been faithful to us and we are to live that out as best as possible for one another. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we close? No, I, I think... Um, I, I guess I'll just emphasize, I think the point that you are, are driving home, which is this faith as a fruit of the Spirit is in many ways a is a carry-through of the faithfulness of God. Yes. And so even when we are going to mess up, that is not your identity. Right. It is what we do. And just as God, very much like the covering up, follows through with God's promise, so then we're hopefully going to model that same faithfulness and follow-through with, each, with ourselves and with each other. So no more shaming on yourself. That's right. Uh, and no more calling yourself a sinner. You are a beloved child of God, created in God's image and likeness, with immense value and worth. And you bear that image with glory and honor. And so when you do something that does not exemplify that, come home. It's that simple. It's not that you are now that thing. It is now come home. Amen. And now comes the portion of our table where Jesus invites us all home. All who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come eat, drink. This table has been prepared for us because doesn't matter. Nobody's kept away. Everybody, no matter where we're at, what we've done, this is the table where we come and we sit with our Savior and 
with all his messy kids from all the way back 2,000 years ago to today and in the future, this table joins us together. This banqueting table joins us to the table 2,000 years ago. It joins us to the table over the last 2,000 years. It joins us to this moment right now with Christ as we sup with Jesus and one another. And it looks forward to the banqueting table to come when all is set to right. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this.